Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello again and welcome to another Horror Shots podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is brought to you by the wonderful people over at morbidlybeautiful.com. If you are a fan of horror in the pop culture sense, then this is the place to go. They're always releasing great new content every single day. That includes interviews, reviews, retrospectives, introspectives, whatever you want, they have it. Go check it out right now. That is morbidlybeautiful.com. Trust me, it's really, really fun, really great, awesome website. Before we get started in the housekeeping sense, I do have a new review to read to you today, and that is from DisChock49 via Apple Podcasts. He says it's spooky with a five-star rating, so thank you for that. And he goes on to say, well-produced, easy to listen to, and great content. A great jaunt into the macabre which is kind of what I'm going for. So thank you very much for that review. It means a whole lot. And of course, if you do want your review read on the podcast, you can just leave one on Apple iTunes, Podcasts, or even Stitcher. I'll accept Stitcher. I like Stitcher. I don't know why. Something about it. But anywhere you want to leave a review, I would be more than happy to see that anywhere. So thank you once again to Dischalk49. That's pretty much all I got for housekeeping. Do check out my latest podcast, which is called By the Candle's Light, and new episodes do drop on Thursdays. It's going to be a short series, roughly six or seven episodes. I forget how many I've recorded. I know I've written a whole bunch, but I haven't gotten around to recording and producing all of them just yet. And that's By the Candle's Light, so you can check that out at the link below, or if you just want to hear the link right now, that is shows.pippa.io slash candleslight. Now, today's episode is going to be a little bit of a special one. And by special, I mean I'm taking a little bit of a break from the touring of the eerie United States. It will return next week, more likely than not. But today, I do have an interview for you. You may remember, a few months ago, I released an episode on the Nephilim. Well, that garnered attention from a very specific person. That person being Ken Ami. Now, Ken is a lecturer, an intellectual, and a scholar. He's written numerous books on various topics, including the Nephilim. And he reached out after that episode, and he had a few things he wanted to share with us. And I'm always more than happy to accommodate somebody who has some expert knowledge or some insight into any of the topics I've ever covered. And he was kind enough to answer a few questions for me. Now, you can check out Ken's work at his website at truefreethinker.com and while you're there you may as well pick up a book or two remember supporting indie authors or small authors or whatever from their website directly is the best way to do it they get the most yield they get the most income and it helps everybody in the world go do what they want to do can't stress that enough go support anybody who you like and do directly Sure, Amazon is a great place to find stuff, but they do take a massive cut towards any purchases you make. 
especially in the independent sense. So without further ado, here's Ken's insight and take on the Nephilim. Like I said, he had a lot to add, and he cleared up a few things that I may have gotten even wrong in that first episode. So he's going to take us on a little bit more of an in-depth ride. It's not super in-depth as it's such a deep topic that it would have taken two or three podcasts, potentially even more, to cover in full. So he got the basics down and covered everything that you really need to know. The need-to-know information, if you will. So here's the first bit of Ken's interview. I'm pleased to be speaking with you and your audience. And yes, I reached out particularly because you did that episode on the Nephilim. And within the context of a website about horror. So those are two topics that interest me. And I am a horror fan, but of course there are sub-genre under the main genre of horror. So I'm definitely a horror snob in that there's some of the subgenre I just do not like whatsoever, like uh, slasher films I care not about whatsoever. And there's others I'm getting really just super tired of, like the zombie genre, you know, that's just getting way too old. I guess I tend towards more the paranormal horror. And so I thought to reach out because... Um, that rung two of my bells, and so the combination of, of them I thought was interesting, and also because a lot of what is being done with Nephilim nowadays is actually within the genre of horror or just general fiction, um, often unfortunately passed off as if it was theology, and so there's a lot of problems there. And I've been reading about the Nephilim, studying up on them from various... Um, um, places, let's say, from various uh, genres of scholarship, from journal articles to just website posts to the pop researchers, and have seen that there's a lot of problems with the issue because, uh, for example, the way you phrase the question is uh, jumping of context. Right, so you refer to the Hebrew term Nephilim, and then you jump to the English term giants. So that right there is a problem, because now we're kind of mashing two categories together. So the Hebrew term Nephilim has a very specific meaning within its own context. And then the English term giants, well, most people generally jump into a discussion about giants without ever bothering to define the term. That causes a ton of problems right there. Because what do you mean by giants, right? Someone who's a few inches taller than average, um, a foot taller than average, an entire body length taller than average, various entire body lengths taller than average. And then uh, when you get into the issue of quote-unquote, giants in the Bible, then what are you talking about? Are you talking about Nephilim? Are you talking about Rephaim? Because those are two Hebrew terms that, unfortunately, some versions translate as giants. And it's never a good idea to translate more than one term with one term, right? So, Nephilim are strictly pre-flood. Rephaim are strictly post-flood. There's absolutely no relation between them, and translating them both as giants only causes problems, causes confusions. <laughs> 
So Nephilim literally means to fall. Okay, so they are the offspring of what are termed sons of God, which within the greater context of the Bible are angels and human women. So they are what we could call hybrids. They did not make it past the flood, so that's the end of them. End of story. The Bible refers to them in only two verses, and that's it. Now, if you go do a website search, um, an online search for the term Nephilim, especially Nephilim giants, you'll get millions of results. Millions. And those are primarily based on two single verses. And then some apocryphal texts, meaning non-biblical texts that are from much later dates. And so what is it about them that has caused so much discussion and debate for centuries, by the way, for millennia, really? Well, I think that's part of it, is that we're told so precious little about them that it gave room for apocryphal writers, for writers of historical fiction, to say, hey, the Bible hardly says anything about this, and it sounds interesting, so I can make up a bunch of stories, and whether those authors meant to be writing fiction or they thought they were writing fact, of, I certainly don't know. But that is very common, that somebody will say, hey, hardly anything is said about subject A. I'm going to go ahead and write about that. And it either gets passed off as fiction or fact, or some combination of, of the two. So post-flood, you have a main category of people uh, termed the Rephaim, okay? And that's all they are. They're just human beings, no big deal. So, under them, there's subcategories, like Anakim. Under them could be Philistine, right? So, it's kind of like um, nation, tribe, clan, family. You see, it's just uh, groupings. And I mentioned those three specifically because, for example, when you get to the issue of Goliath, he gets lumped into this whole Nephilim issue, but illegitimately. He wasn't uh, Nephilim, nor could he have been, because he lived post-flood. So he was a Philistine. Philistines are considered Anakim. Anakim are considered Rephaim. So there you have it. Um, and let me just say at this point, I could turn this into a very long and boring lecture filled with quotations and citations, but I thought to just speak in general terms. And you can look at my written works on my website or my books for all the details and quotations and citations to just try to keep this a little bit more conversational. So just looking at the Hebrew term Nephilim, again, it just means to fall. And we're told precious little about them. We know that they lived pre-flood. Um, verse 4 of Genesis 6 tells us that they were on the earth in those days and also after that. And a lot of people liked to, for some odd reason, jam the concept in the, of the flood into that statement. But that's verse 4, and the flood is not even mentioned until verse 17. So you can't just jam it into that because it's uncontextual. But the verse goes on to say, 
there were Nephilim in the earth in those days and also after that, when the sons of God came unto the daughters of men and they had offspring with them, right? So there it is. When were those days when they first started doing that? When was after that? After they first started doing that. There you go. It's not difficult. And when did they start doing that? Well, verse 1 tells you. It was when men began to multiply upon the earth and women were and children were born to them. When was that? I certainly don't know, but it could have been as early as Adam and Eve started having children and their children started having children, see? So, the Nephilim were in the earth whenever that was, the timeline beginning with verse 1, and also after that, after the timeline beginning with verse 1. That's it. But all that is still a pre-flood. Why? Because the flood account is that only eight people survived and some animals. So there you have the end of the Nephilim. And biblically, they did not survive the flood. They did not return after the flood, nor will they ever return. There's simply no indication of that whatsoever. Aha, uh -huh. I know what some of you are thinking, and I'm gonna to get to that in just a minute. But let's look at the word giant for a moment, right? The, the vague, generic, subjective and I submit to you unbiblical English term. Why unbiblical? Well because there is no Hebrew word for someone who's taller than average. There's just no word whatsoever. So the word giant in English really comes from the Greek gigantes or gigas and it literally means earthborn. It implies nothing about height whatsoever. Some people think that it implies something about height because in later Greek mythology, that word is used to describe the Titans. But this gets very complex very fast because there's really no such thing as the Titans. There are various generations of Titans, with the first ones being so enormous and non-human that they're actually the earth and the sky okay so later you have another generation of titans who are very tall so that's a different story but even if you want to point to one particular generation and say aha earthborn means really tall well no it doesn't neither did the greek translators of the subtuagint aka lxx Sorry, LXX for 70. The translators of the Greek Septuagint might have chosen that word to correlate to Greek mythology, perhaps, but the question still remains why? They might have done it because they thought the Nephilim were very, very tall, but Genesis 6 tells us no physical description of them whatsoever, so we actually don't know if they were even one inch taller than average. But also, they could have used that word because why? Because the second generation of Titans were also hybrids, and they were also tyrannical, let's say. And so there could have been more than one reason why that term was used of them in the Greek. So you can't just pick the one that favors you and run with it. You have to at least admit there's other options. The other issue is that if the term Nephilim derives from Hebrew, like I've said, 
it would mean to fall. And if it derives from Aramaic, it derives from nafal, which I've heard way too many, too many people say, well, that means giants. Okay, but that just begs the question then, what does giants mean? But the fact is that nafal is a word that does not imply anything about height whatsoever. So, bottom line, after this uh, big extended answer to what is supposed to be a simple question about why I contacted you, <laughs> is that the term Nephilim needs to be divorced from the English term giants, period, completely. But let's get into why it is generally combined. It's not just that some English versions, unfortunately, use it to translate the word Nephilim. It's because of Numbers 13.33, which is a post-flood account that mentions um, Nephilim. And they are, quote-unquote, gigantic in that account. Right? Because what it states in that verse is that when the Israelites go into the land of Israel, or what is to be the land of Israel, they report seeing Nephilim. And they claim that the Anakim are related to the Nephilim. And they claim that the Nephilim are so very, very, very tall that in comparison, the Israelites felt like grasshoppers. Okay. However, it's not good enough to say, well, it's in the Bible, so it must be true. It's not good enough to say, well, I believe that God inspired the Bible, so it must be true. It's not good enough to say, well, Moses wrote it down, so it must be true. None of that is good enough because the context will always determine the meaning. And the context is what? It is not that the Israelites went into the land and reported that. Because I just said it in mistakenly on purpose. To make a very long story short, 12 spies were sent into the land. When they return, they say the land is good. Number two, they show the fruits of it. Number three, they say that um, the people of the land were strong. They say that their cities will, are well, well fortified. And they list various subcategories of people, such as Anakim. But the, there's ten spies who then discourage the people from taking the land which God had commanded them to do. So these guys are obviously intimidated because you're, okay, the context is that the Israelites at this time are wilderness uh, dwellers. They're itinerant, right? They're moving around. They're living in tents. All of a sudden, they're confronted with these well-fortified cities protected by strong people, and they're intimidated. So these guys are scared, and they try to dissuade the people from doing what God had commanded them to do. Well, Caleb... And along with him, Joshua, they encourage the people. Okay? All of a sudden, Moses tells us that the ten spies present a quote-unquote evil report. And all of a sudden, the spies say that the land is not good. And that they saw Nephilim and that Anakim are related to Nephilim. And that the Nephilim are very, very, very tall. And they were rebuked for that statement, by the way. And that statement contradicts 
Moses, Caleb, Joshua, and God, because all of them affirm having seen Anakim in the land, but they never say one single word about Nephilim. So if you notice the flow of the story, first of all, if you saw beings that were very, very tall to the point that you compare yourself to a grasshopper, is the first thing you say when you get back to camp, hey, we're back, check out this fruit. Yeah, isn't that cool? Uh, no. <laughs> so, in other words, everything they do is backwards if they had really seen what they claimed to have seen. So first they present a good report of the land, but then within the evil report, they change their minds and they present an evil report of the land. First the land is good, then all of a sudden they change their minds. No, the land is bad. First they claim that the land, the people of the land are strong. That's it. Later, they claim within the evil report, they claim the people of the land are of great stature and that they see the Nephilim who are just absolutely gigantic. Okay, so first they claim to have seen the Anakim along with a bunch of other peoples and all of a sudden they decide within the evil report to claim that the Anakim are related to the Nephilim. So in other words, if you take their report that's accepted as is, it's very simple. Good land, good fruit, strong people, fortified cities, that's about it. Within the evil report is where they all of a sudden claim that the people are all of great stature, the land is bad, there's Nephilim, Anakim are related to Nephilim, and Nephilim are very, very, very tall. Okay, so those three claims, the Nephilim are still alive post-flood, Anakim are related to them, and they're very, very tall. The rest of the entire Bible knows nothing about that, not one single word. So you have to ask yourself, well, do I believe one single statement within an evil report that was rebuked and contradicts the entire rest of the Bible? Or do I believe 10 spies? who were set to present an evil report, were rebuked for it and contradict the rest of the Bible, right? So it's pretty simple. So now I think I've probably talked long enough for one simple uh, answer, and I'll get back into some of the issues about quote-unquote giants um, as we go along. So there you have his insight on some of the topics such as the differences between the Nephilim and, say, giants. And it's a very interesting fact, and it's a very chronological look at how the timeline progressed from the first event to the Flood, and so on and so forth. From there, I went on to ask him a little bit more about his favorite things to write about. He's very religious-centric, and he does enjoy pop culture as well. So I asked him how those two things kind of melded together and how he produces the content he does. Well, yes, you hit the nail on the head. I do tend to write about biblical topics as well as pop culture and the correlation of the two and also the conflict between the two. So uh, for me, it's all about worldview. And I noticed that even when people write books that are fictional or produce fictional movies, they inevitably have to appeal to something of their own real-life worldview, right? I mean, any of us could think, well, what if I made a movie? 
all of a sudden you would start appealing to things that you actually believe in the real world to portray in your movie, even if then you, you fictionalize it, right? It's by necessity. You have to do that or else your movie would be so absolutely abstract that it would be uh, completely meaningless, ultimately. And so that to me is interesting is how pop culture interacts with favorably or unfavorably with um, what is traditional theology to the USA, which is um, biblical theology, you know, Christianity, as much as that is going away, in part due to um, pop culture and sociopolitical activism. So that's what interests me about those two topics is how they interact and how they conflict. So as you can see, Ken is a very interesting guy. He's a lot to say on a very wide range of topics. And that's great. Having variety and a vast wealth of knowledge to pull from is always going to make for great and interesting content. From there, I went on to ask him a little bit more about his website and what it covers and some complaints and some comments he's received in the past and how he's dealt with those. The way the website came about was really because I used to run about a dozen blogs um, at the same time. And what I had done at, at, at that time was I had different blogs on different subjects. And so I thought that was a good idea, it seemed to me, to just have different contexts for each blog. Uh, where eventually it just kind of became too much to handle, so I decided to just lump everything together and went to one gigantic website, right? So True Free Thinker is my repository. It's kind of like a one-stop shop now. And so that's how that came about, is to just try to make it easier for myself to manage and also easier for people who just kind of had more than one interest to see what else um, I, I had to say about various issues and yes um, a lot of people ask me about the name true free thinker and a lot of people complain about it especially atheists because they think like they own the concept of free thinking and really I mean the website is true free thinker but you know sometimes true free thinker I mean I get it that's how people read it and that's how it's written sometimes but so I'm truly free to think <laughs> and so that's the point I have the freedom to think think about anything and kind of follow the evidence where it leads um, so again within the context of the atheist who complained to me while well, I always tell them well you're not a free thinker because for one um, you claim that you're basically uh, a mechanism that is by necessity under the, the restraints of natural law, right? So even what you call your thoughts, they are the byproduct of laws of thermodynamics and biochemistry and what have you. And atheism will not allow you to think beyond materialism. So you're really stuck. You're stuck in a, in a quaint box of materialism, physicalism, reductionism, what have you. Whereas I have a lot more freedom in that sense. And even the traditional definition of free thinker includes theologies such as deism. So uh, to me, it's just, it's, 
it's not so much about getting all stuck on a term, but the concept of what you'll find in my website is my free thinking. I mean, I'm writing about theology and pop culture and um, commenting on so many different things because that's what it allows me to do is freely think through issues in various directions. And so you'll find all kinds of stuff on there that I've tried to categorize in order to make it user-friendly. Now, after all that, I did want to dig a little bit more into who Ken actually is and what got him started on the road that he's currently on. Now, if you read his website, he does have a whole lot of fun little stories about his personal life on there. But I thought having him share it firsthand would be a little bit better. So here is Ken explaining a little bit more about what it was like as a child for him and, you know, what really sowed the seeds for the future him. So now when you say religion plays a big role in my content, oh, now we're back to another term that is um, generally discussed without definition, right? So what is religion? Well, if I were to use the biblical definition, there's only one reference to religion, and it defines it as that true religion before God the Father is to care for widows and orphans and stay unspotted from the world, which is very different from a, let's say, modern-day dictionary definition. So I would rather think in terms of relation rather than religion. And so when you ask about my upbringing and what jump-started me to get me to where I am, that's part of it. And you ask about the, my story of the teeth mice, which is basically, when I was growing up, that was the equivalent of the American concept of the tooth fairy. Yeah, we got the knockoff. You know, we got the vermin that crawl around your bed. <laughs> so the issue with the teeth mice is that when I was a kid, I eventually, of course, found out there's no such thing as teeth mice. It was just my parents taking my tooth and putting money under my pillow. And that upset me so much. Why? Well, because they had told me that they were these teeth mice that performed this magical task. And I believed them. And then only to find out they had deceived me. I mean, sure, fun, fun, childish deception. But still, to me, that was an incredibly impactful moment. And by the way, if you go on YouTube and search for Santa Syndrome, you'll find many, many videos about atheists that tell the same kind of story about Santa. They believed in Santa because their parents told them, only to find out that there's no such thing, and it was their parents doing it all, and then that they started wondering about how many more things their parents were deceiving them about, or especially in the mystical realm. And... Okay, I'll grant you most of those videos are made by a pretty snarky guy that's just pointing that out. But it is interesting, and to me, it made it, it, I, I could totally empathize with that because that was my experience. So what I recognize is that for me, and, and that was, I don't know, before the age of 10 for sure. For me, that was the moment I always look back to for why I became interested in understanding truth. What was the actual truth, right, behind it all, the absolute? What was it? And that just set me off uh, in a lifetime of seeking it, um, ending up con contemplating everything and anything I could think of 
um, had an interest in the new age. I went through a period of, uh, you know, everything being black, um, horror movies, horror music, wearing black, that whole thing. Um, an interest in the reggae scene, reading about all kinds of religions and philosophies and concepts, all, all of that stuff, uh, till the age of 27, where, well, to make a very long story short, yes, I had a secular Jewish background, but I also did go to a private Jewish school, had my bar mitzvah in Israel when I lived there for two months. And so all of these things were just kind of lumped together in my head. And then one day I started listening to these crazy Christians because in all my pretending that I was oh so open-minded, I realized, huh, you know, Christians, I've never given them a fair hearing. And if anything, they were the only people I was willing to badmouth. God forbid I would badmouth anybody else or any other theology or, or any other philosophy or anything else. No, no, no. You can't do that, but you can spit in the face of Christians all you want. That's culturally accepted. So as I started listening to them, and I don't mean the big-haired guys on TV, you know. Um, I mean like serious Bible study, talking about um, getting into the text, getting into the history and the language and archaeology and all that stuff. I thought, well, these Christians are nuts. I mean, they're literally just insane. Who are, who are they to think they can tell me what my Jewish scriptures say and such? So I, 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 for a while there, I went through the typical stages of shock, you know, from denial to anger to, well, eventually, eventually acceptance and, and realizing that Jesus is the Messiah, right? He is the Lord God and Savior. And maybe ironically to some people, the problem of evil actually played a big role in that. Because I thought, well, you know, my people have been persecuted and suffered all kinds of things for a millennia. And if there's no ultimate redeemer, then it was literally all for nothing. Literally for nothing. And this is the kind of discussion I have with my atheist friends sometimes. And I point out to them. You know, on your atheistic worldview, since you tend to plug uh, evolution into it, evil, pain, and suffering are good. They say played a beneficial role in human evolution. Well, of course, with religion, there are always several sides to each coin, but the big two are the people who believe in a higher power, a god, some sort of faith, and there's the people who simply don't. So we have the believers and the non-believers, or the theists and the atheists. So Ken had some choice words for his thoughts on atheism and how that really kind of got the ball rolling on his online presence. Well, there's a few reasons why I have tended to focus on atheism a lot. Um, one of them is that essentially I first started posting online because of atheism, because I was listening to lectures by atheists, listening to debates with them, uh, reading their material, and I could not believe the kind of stuff they were getting away with. I mean, logical fallacies, historical untruths, uh, mis uh, mis misunderstandings of the Bible passed off as fact. Uh, just unbelievable. So that's really kind of got what got me to go online and start attempting to iron some of these things out. And... That's been very eye-opening because it, it kind of lets me see that people who often portray themselves to be like the utmost 
of erudition, you know, um, of going beyond this sort of backwards um, Bible-based beliefs. They're, they're just so far beyond any of that. And then when you actually break down what they're saying, it's uh, generally quite fallacious, um, philosophically, logically, you name it. And, uh, and a lot of times also, atheists appeal to science as if science has anything to do with atheism and atheism has to do with science. There's no correlation there whatsoever. And so basically, since atheism cannot provide a premise for truth, logic, or ethics, it's really a worldview that fails before it even begins. Um, basically, what I've been telling atheists a lot recently is, you know, you expect me to take your claims seriously, but on your very own view, you're just a talking ape, right? We're just temporarily and accidentally existing bioorganisms sitting atop a rock, orbiting an average star uh, in the backwaters of a universe that was accidentally and temporarily popped into being, right? So in other words, the universe is accidental and temporary. The earth is accidental and, accidental and temporary. Life is accidental and temporary. So your brain was just kind of haphazardly evolved and a, a random mixture of biochemicals in your gray matter are what you interpret to be an, an interaction with reality and you demand that you're right about something and you're wrong about and I'm wrong about something. I mean, it's, it's absurd. It's about as meaningful as if I go down to the zoo and I hear a couple of apes arguing, hey, it's really ooh, ooh, ah, ah. No, 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 it's really ah, ah, ooh, ooh. I mean, seriously, that, that's the level of the discussion when somebody claims that everything in the entire universe is an accident and that by golly, we better pay attention to the atheists because they're right and everyone else is wrong. I mean, it's, it's absurd on its face. Uh, being the nature of the Horror Shots podcast, we do go into a little bit more than just the religion here. We do go into cryptids, and giants were a part of that during the Nephilim talk that I had those many months ago. So I asked Ken his take on, you know, the giants, the lore behind them, the differences between them and the Nephilim, so on and so forth, as well as other cryptids and his thoughts on the genre as a whole. Well, I think at this point I'll get into the issue about quote-unquote giants and then about uh, what you call cryptids or mythological creatures, you know, that kind of thing. Now, when it comes to giants, again, it's an unfortunate term that got mashed into the Bible and caused a whole bunch of problems. So let me just point out that the Bible specifies the specific heights of three people, period. One is Goliath, and Goliath's height is really irrelevant because what's significant about him is that he was a warrior. <laughs> he was a trained, successful warrior. He is referred to as a champion of the Philistines. So that really has nothing to do with his height, although he might have been tall. 
And there you go. Tall is another generic, vague, and subjective term, isn't it? Um, I'm six even. That's it. And modern-day North America, that is not very tall. But I can't tell you how many times people have told me, Whoa, you're so tall. How tall are you? Wow. Six foot even? That, that's nothing to be impressed by. But it happens all the time. One time my doctor had me sitting on the examination table and he says, I have to get on my tippy toes just to check your eyes. You know, I mean, so that's subjective. So the issue with Goliath's height is just that there's the discrepancy between manuscripts, right? So Greek manuscripts have him as being just shy of 10 feet. Hebrew manuscripts plus Dead Sea Scrolls plus Flavius Josephus, who's a historian from the um, early A.D., they have them as just shy of seven feet. Okay, now besides that, it's irrelevant how tall he was. The thing is, the average Hebrew male of biblical days was 5'5 five five or shorter. Okay, so even if you were 6'5, that would be very tall, much less close to seven feet. If you want to use the term giant of them, I guess you could. But again, there's no Hebrew term for what people generally think of as giant. Now, our pro basketball players, none of them quite make it to eight feet. And that appears to be just about as tall as anybody was in the ancient days and in the Bible especially. There's an Egyptian man in the Bible who's described as being 5'7". Um, sorry, I got that backwards. 7'5". And then you have the issue of King Og of Bashan. First of all, he's specified to have been a Rephaim. Second of all, we have no idea how tall he was. We're only told of the size of his bed, or some say that it should be translated coffin. Uh, now, if you measured my bed, yeah, you'd have a pretty good idea of how tall I was. But you would also think that I was five times wider than I actually am. So, if you want to say, hey, his bed would make it so that he himself was 12 or 13 feet tall, I guess you could say that, but you would have to admit that you don't actually know his height. You're just speculating. And why would a guy have a huge bed like that? I have absolutely no idea. But, maybe he was living the lifestyle of the rich and tyrannical. Right? Who knows? Maybe he had his harem sleeping with him on the bed. Maybe he just liked luxuriousness. Or, you know, maybe his wife had just had a baby. You know how much room a baby takes up on the bed? A baby that's a foot long can take up 90% of the bed, just in case you don't know. Believe me. Uh, but I jest at that point. But the fact is that, as I noted in one of my books, well, the book that I wrote about Nephilim and giants. What does the Bible say about giants and Nephilim, actually? is what it's called. It is well known that Alexander the Great would set up his camps to be much bigger than necessary with, with, with bigger things, bigger appliances. In other words, as he would travel around, they would set up camp for some amount of time, then they would move on. So the local people would go into the deserted camp and find that, wow, these guys must have been gigantic. Look at these 
uh, oversized things, but it's known that they he would do that on purpose. So that might be why Og had a gigantic bed when he was a regular sized guy. But again, it's a non-issue. One, we have no idea how tall it, he was. Two, if you want to insist he was 13, 12 feet tall, good for him. What do I care? <laughs> but three, he was Rephaim. He was not Nephilim, nor could he have been, because Nephilim did not make it past the flood, period. So there you go. That's my main take on it. If there have been people who are much, much, much taller than six feet, my opinion is good for them. Um, but I just don't see it. I don't see it anywhere. And in apocryphal texts, like non-biblical texts, when they talk about quote-unquote giants, they're obviously just preposterously tall. And I'm not saying preposterously tall is some kind of standard, because then that's just me being subjective. I mean, tall to the point where they could never grow that tall. Just the caloric requirement to just stay alive would be unsustainable, much less if they tried to take a, take a single step, they would shatter their own bones, right? I mean, because you have tall tales, pun intended, of quote-unquote giants that are literally hundreds of feet tall, if not more. And the Talmud, they're so tall that they wear the sun as a necklace. Ouch! I mean, seriously, um, it's just you get to the point where you recognize that you're reading tall tales. You're reading apocryphal folk folklore, and you should take it for what it is. And so whenever you see the word giant in a particular English Bible, you need to ask yourself, what does the context tell me about what I'm reading? Because really, that word will mean Nephilim in Genesis 6 and in Numbers 13.33, period. That's it. And anywhere else, it means Raphaim, and it's not implying anything about their height. But what about the Amorites? Ah, well, we're told that the Amorites were as strong as oaks. Okay, anybody willing to propose a one-to-one -one ratio-based calculation as to the strength of a tree versus the strength of a person, how they, how they correlate? Or if, is everyone thinking, oh, well, they're strong as oaks. That's just metaphorical for that they're strong. Well, yeah, exactly. No big deal. Ah, but it also says that their height is as the cedars. Now, all of a sudden, people do begin proposing a one-to-one -one ratio comparison. Well, let's measure cedars, you know, 40, 60 feet tall. That means the, the Amorites must have been that tall. Well... Obviously, uh, we're just being told that they're big and strong. I mean, it's. I'm not sure why we need to go beyond that. Because if it was not within your mindset to want to, for some odd reason, push the idea of giants when giants mean various entire body lengths taller than average, if that wasn't in your mind, I propose you would never even imagine reading something like that they're strong as oaks and tall as cedars and say, aha. That's to be taken literally to the point where we need to start making calculations. I mean, if you want to do that, you certainly can. But I, I think it's fairly illegitimate. Now, when you ask about cryptids, mythological creatures, Bigfoot, fairies, right? To me, I like defining my terms and categorizing things. So 
I would spend quite a bit of time first discussing with you, well, what do you mean by those things? How do you define your terms? How do we categorize them? And only eventually actually discussing them. So, for example, if Bigfoot is a large, hairy organism, right, an animal, that's very different from a fairy. That would be like a mystical realm type of paranormal, paranormal um, phenomena. So that would be very different. And then, of course, there's those who do claim that Bigfoot has a paranormal aspect to it. And maybe they're doing that just for that reason. Because if they are out to research the par paranormal, all of a sudden they can categorize Bigfoot into that, into their research, and claim it as their own. Just by kind of watering down the uh, definitions and breaking through categories. So in other words, I don't think that there's a, a, a sort of theory of all when it comes to those things because they're so very different. It's going to really need an overarching actual theory of all, not just a theory about cryptids, but an overarching theory of reality, right? So for example, uh, let's take the issue of the chupacabra. It's an interesting one because there's really three subcategories, right? There's a North American chupacabra, South American chupacabra, and miscellaneous chupacabra. And I think that teaches us a lot about how to think through these issues. So North American chupacabra is basically a canine. Any canine, uh, generally one that suffers from mange or some disease that causes its fur to fall out. And so... We're not used to seeing canines without fur. Maybe nowadays we're more used to it because you can just get online and look up uh, hairless cats and all that stuff. But uh, it's been pretty unusual historically. So if you see something running around, especially in the evening where it's dark out, uh, that looks unusual, then you can just call it chupacabra. That's North American. South American chupacabra is like a hybrid. It's some sort of like... Uh, <laughs> Um, I don't know, hairless chimp-like thing with big eyes, almond-shaped eyes, and spines down its back, big claws, right? Like a total hybrid. Miscellaneous chupacabra is basically whatever you want to slap into that category. Hey, what is that? I don't know. Did you get a good look at it? No, me either. It was a chupacabra, right? So that that really shows us how important it is to define terms without before jumping into a discussion about them. And so, are there rare and unusual animals that are only seen in certain times, certain places? I'm sure there are. Um, are there um, mystical sort of paranormal entities running amok doing stuff? Yep, I would definitely say that they are. Uh, you might as well throw the concept of aliens into that. And that's another gigantic category under which there are various subcategories, right? Uh, what do you mean? Uh, an organism that traveled here from another planet in our universe? Or an extra dimensional being that traveled here from another dimension or another universe? Um, so again, it gets very complicated. And it is important to get complicated if you're interested and digging down to the truth of the matter. So for a lot of it on the paranormal side, I would definitely end up claiming that it is demonic activity. Uh, 
And that is not, by the way, because I could just simply slap the term demon on all of it and be done with it. That would be very simple to do. But then, I don't want to sound like the uh, the good old-fashioned Saturday Night Live church lady, you know. Oh, who was it? I don't know. Satan? Yeah, just, just say everything's demonic and you're done with it. It wouldn't be because of that. It would be because of what we know about the characteristics of demons, whereby they could fit the description of all these things that are being reported as being paranormal, from visitations to hauntings, you name it. But, you know, at that point, I would just be rabbit trailing into the issue of demons, just like some wanted, I'm sure, would like me to rabbit trail into the issue of angels when it comes to how the Nephilim came about. If you notice, I really just skipped that, because we can def describe Nephilim without describing who their parents were. <laughs> um, and I just didn't want to deviate this discussion into one where I'm just getting into all kinds of things that take us far afield. Uh, those would be other shows. And now, you know, you, you mentioned uh, my books. So I'm just going to mention them here because that is where all my details are. So I always joke that I should know my own canon, but... I haven't counted my books lately. I think I'm on about to maybe 30 books. Um, the most contextually relevant ones... Okay, I'll tell you what happened. I'll make a short story long in this case. So, I wanted to know about the paranormal in the Bible. So, angels, cherubim, seraphim, demons, evil, wicked, lying spirits, Satan, Nephilim, you name it. All of it. All of it. I sat down, I researched all of it, I thought about all of it, I wrote down one book that was about all of it, and it took years to do all that, by the way, of course. Then I was done writing the book, and I thought, oh, this is a bit much. It's like drinking from a fire hose. It's like way too much. So I decided to break it up into a series of books. So now, one is called, What Does the Bible Say About Angels? There you go. That's just about angels. Then one is about just demons. One is just about Satan. One is just about Nephilim and quote-unquote giants. And one is called, what does the Bible say about various paranormal entities, where I could throw in a whole bunch of other ones that there wasn't enough to go on to write a whole book. And then one, one about heaven and hell. And so that, I think, made it easier to cover all those subjects um, by category. And then within the other context of which I reached out to you, um, I have written a book titled A Worldview Review of the Alien and Predator Franchise Mythos. Um, so that one, to me, movie reviews are not about the acting and the setting and the background and the plot and blah, 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 all this stuff. That doesn't interest me whatsoever. I'm interested in the theology of the movies, the philosophy of the movies, maybe the occult in the movies, whatever it is. Just the underlying bottom line foundation, uh, what messages are being posed to us through fiction, based on real life, that, that sort of thing. And then I wrote a book called Transhuman Hollywood, 
from predictive programming to normative fiction. So that one is about transhumanist elements in many, many Hollywood movies. And so transhumanism, again, that's a rabbit trail, but it's also known as futurism or post-humanism, various terms. So that's another whole book. And I'm currently writing one, which is a worldview review of Stephen King's It, right? The novel, the miniseries, and the two movies, which uh, I found to be very interesting because as I explained in the intro, I've never been much into Stephen King's, you know, watched movies based on his books, read a few of his short stories, but uh, didn't really do it for me. Uh, so I wasn't that interested in it, um, except I listened to a friend of mine, Isaac Weishaupt of IlluminatiWatcher.com. He was doing a podcast on it, and halfway through his talk, I was like, okay, I got to write a book about this. Because <laughs> he made it clear that behind it all, you you don't see much of this in the movies or the miniseries. Uh, behind it all, it's very deeply philosophical. It's actually Gnostic and it's very sort of spiritual. There are aspects of it that the miniseries and movies didn't get into whatsoever. So I thought, okay, yeah, I definitely got to dig into this. And so there I went off writing another book and I'm still writing it and hopefully by year's end I'll have it published. I also wrote one called Fifty Shades of Grey Aliens. And there I go again because uh, aliens and UFOs, that could be two different categories right there. So I get into that whole issue. I wrote one about the infamous occultist Aleister Crowley and his influence on pop culture from beyond the grave. So just head over to truefreethinker.com and I tried to make it user-friendly enough so that once you land there, you'll see where to find my books, my social uh, network sites, and anything else you might be interested in. So there we have it. That brings us to the end of this episode. I want to thank Ken again for contacting us and reaching out. So one of my favorite things about doing the podcast is hearing from people who listen to it and have their own take on the stuff that I talk about. So again, thank you, Ken. Be sure to check out his website. It's full of interesting facts, interesting topics, opinion pieces, whatever you want. He's got a great assortment of content for you on there. And you can find him at truefreethinker.com. So until next week, when we take the road again to another state in the eerie United States.